All right, while everybody is uh, finding their seat, just uh, review the announcements that uh, Chaffer Seminary Spring Registration began yesterday and goes through January the 20th. Classes begin on Monday the 21st. I'll be teaching History of Doctrine uh, this semester, and that's going to be live-streamed through the uh, DBM website, and then um, there will be audio files uh, as well on, on the lessons posted on the uh, DBM website. So uh, keep that in mind. So if you are a member of West Houston Bible Church, then uh, you get to take the court up to two courses at, at no charge other than the registration fees, and the registration fees waived if you register before January the 8th, so then you get to almost take a free course. So you can't beat that. Grace is always good. Um, also, we're going to reboot on um, men's prayer breakfast uh, Saturday, the, Jan- the 14th of January. So that's going to be a week from this coming um, Saturday. And then um, you can register for the Chafer, Chafer Conference. Also, there's some new information every now and then is going to be put up for the Israel tour. And it's now time when people can send in their, um, their deposit and uh, for various reasons, our, we, have, uh, we have all that information about the deposit in the brochure. And um, we waited until uh, 1st of January because it's a, just a nightmare to try to sp- spread the cost across two fiscal years, especially if there's refunds and all of that. So we try to keep everything in the same fiscal year. So now you can send your, re- uh, your registration in and your deposit. Okay, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. If you've been out there in Houston traffic or in the parking lots over the holiday seasons, you may have spent more time uh, confessing sin over the last couple of weeks, but hopefully uh, the devil will take those parking problems and everything else out of the way and won't be quite such a challenge uh, now that all the holidays are over with. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together this evening, to focus upon you, to think about your word, to be reminded of your grace. And also, as we go through the book of Judges, it reminds us that going through a time of moral relativism and the impact it has on a nation is not anything new. 
In fact, it's even in Israel, it wasn't restricted to the period of the judges, but they went through this cycle quite a few times. And nevertheless, you've always accomplished your purpose, that believers have been sustained and provided for throughout that time, and that in your omniscience, you have given us everything we need in order to live our life, in order to face the challenges that come our way, and that in those cases, we have great opportunity to grow spiritually as we trust in you in, the, in difficult times. So, Father, we pray now as we study more about you, study more about your grace and your provision for Israel, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged in the inner man, as Paul prays, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, let me see. Where did Sandy go? Sandy, would you go check the copy and bring me some what I printed, please? I forgot to go get that. All right. We are continuing our study in Judges 13 with the story of Samson. And we're going to go back, and in our review, we're going to look at some things that I didn't uh, cover uh, last time. Uh, last time, the focus in our study on the angel of the Lord was on showing that the angel of the Lord is God. He is fully divine. And tonight we'll go back and look at some other passages that give us a clear indication that the angel of the Lord is distinct from God the Father. And that shows that there clearly is a plurality in the Godhead in the Old Testament, something that is uh, not necessarily accepted by uh, uh, Jews because they have opted to interpret the Old Testament in terms of a strict or a Unitarian, thank you, Sandy, uh, Unitarian monotheism, but that was not the way it was handled uh, in, this, in biblical times. There's clearly a plurality. There are times when you have passages like the Lord said to my Lord in Psalm 110 that indicate a at least two. Then you have passages in Isaiah where you have the Lord sending his spirit. And so you, it, it's clear there are three distinct personalities uh, in, in the Godhead. So we have been looking at Judges, and I know it's almost like I beat a dead horse here because everybody gets tired of hearing this, but some pastor once said that the purpose of teaching is not to make it memorable, but to teach it so they can't forget it. And I went through the three elements of the Abrahamic covenant when we went through Genesis again and again and again. And if you can't say those three elements, you ought to be just hang your head in shame and go back and listen to all of that all over again. Land, seed, and blessing. Very good. little pop quiz. Okay, so we see this deterioration in the period of the judges because everyone is doing what right in their own eyes. The reason they do what is right in their own eyes is because of the first clause in that verse, and that, is, that states there was no king in Israel. And that's not talking just about a human king, but according to the Mosaic law, which envisioned a future king, 
a future human king. God was the king. It was a theocracy, and a theocracy uh, technically is not where you have uh, a religious influence on the rulers, which is how liberals want to take it because they hate Christianity and they hate uh, anyone who tries to enforce anything close to a morality code. I always remember the story Charlie told of conversation he had with one of his uh, uh, co- congressional representatives who told him that there was a time when, as you, as we know, in Congress, the all representatives have aides, and so they send them with messages from one congressman to another. And so this aide came into this congressman's office and saw that he had on his wall uh, the Ten Commandments. And they were a little bit shocked because they had heard all sorts of evil things about the Ten Commandments. But then as they stood there waiting, they read the Ten Commandments and made the comment, well, what's so bad about that? The level of biblical illiteracy is the devil's playground. And we have people who, because they have rejected God, have rejected uh, the standards of Scripture. Now, we know morality isn't the same as spirituality, but without morality based that is based on Scripture, remember, morality is always based on some religious system. In the early 70s, the Supreme Court commented that secular humanism was a religion, or words to that effect. And so because of that, you see that even the the moral relativists have their own standards and they're self-righteous about that. They're self-righteous about their relativistic standards as the Pharisees were about their religious standards. You can't get away from having some standard because anytime you mention something to somebody and they disagree with you, they say, well, you're wrong. Well, what do you mean I'm wrong? On what basis? What's your value system? Uh, by saying I'm wrong indicates that you believe there are some kind of absolutes by which you can evaluate right from wrong. Well, where do you, do you get that? And that's the essential problem with moral relativism is that it, it ends up in uh, moral and intellectual irrationality. And if you want to understand how irrational our country has become, uh, I'm, I'm not recommending this. But the place to find it is on the national news around 5.30 or 6.30, 5.30 or so every evening. So that's the situation and circumstances you had in ancient Israel. And each judicial cycle, each cycle of a judge, is worse than the one before. And it just goes downward and downward and downward. We're in the last one of the six judges, six cycles of judges, and then after this, we go through some uh, sections where it's dealing with what's happening among the priesthood and what's happening among the people. But this is the flow. We're down to Samson, and this chart that I've been putting up, I revised it, uh, changed it up a little bit in terms of its uh, color and things today, is to show that while we read these things in, in, as if it's told in consecutive order, there's an overlap of these judges, Jephthah, Samson in the book of Judges, and then Samuel, who's covered in the first part of First Samuel, all have lives that overlapped. 
and they dealt with enemies of Israel that were different. At least Jephthah was dealing with the Ammonites and the Ammonite oppression, which you see down here in the middle in the light uh, in the tan box. And Samson and Samuel both dealt with the Philistines, and the Philistines are still a problem after uh, Samson dies. David is the one who finally does away with them, and you don't hear much about them uh, through the remainder of Scripture. And I believe that the Assyrian invasion, which comes in the 8th century, probably did away with uh, the Philistines, the last remnants of, of, that, of that group. So this gives you a timeline. You have the Philistine oppression, which goes on. Uh, it is stifled to some degree by Saul. He defeats them at the Battle of Mizpah. And then uh, David will defeat Goliath, of course, and there will be other battles until David uh, finally defeats them. So we started off with the first verse in the chapter. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. God is always the standard of right and wrong. And evil, in, the, in most cases in the Scripture, in these kinds of contexts, is not just that they sinned, but they send the sin of idolatry. They rebel. It's a rebellion against God, who is their true king. And we looked at the fact that this introduces one of the first questions we need to address to get background on this chapter, and that is, who are the Philistines? And God gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, and we talked about that as we looked at these four questions that we've covered in the last several weeks. Who are the Philistines? Second, what is significant about a barren woman in Scripture? Third, who is the angel of the Lord? And we'll review more on that and add some tonight. And then the Nazarite vow, which is uh, covered about three times in this chapter. The angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mother, gives her the instructions related to the vow. Then she goes home to her husband Manoah and repeats the instructions. And then he wants to speak to the angel of the Lord. And he goes and the angel of the Lord repeats those instructions to him. So the Holy Spirit has us reading those instructions three times. The Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to what those instructions are. Whenever God repeats himself, it's important to pay attention to that. So I asked a question about what the Bible teaches about the Philistines. Now, I made it sound simple. I think I've got a good answer. But this is one of the most complex questions in the Old Testament, in terms of the peoples of the Old Testament. And over the last two or three weeks, I've had conversations with two of our three uh, speakers who are going to be here for the Chafer Conference in March, uh, both Randy Price and today I had a conversation with uh, Doug Petrovich. And while I w we were talking about something else, I said, well, before I go, tell me who the Ph Philistines are. And we all basically agree that the problem is that the Philistines are identified with the Kaftarim and the Kazluhim, who are mentioned in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, as being from Crete and being descendants of uh, Noah's son, Ham. Remember, Noah has three sons. 
Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so they're, they're descent. But when you get into the scripture, especially the period we're talking about, they are, um, seem to be influenced at least by the Semitic culture around them. They have Semitic names for some of their gods and, and some other things. So the best solution basically looks at it this way. After the ark, so the ark comes to ground up here in just the upper right-hand corner of the, of the slide at Mount Ararat. And so the suns come off, and they begin to uh, have children, and those children have children, and on and on. And so the descendants of Ham come out of the that area, and you have Hamites that go to Africa. You have Hamites that go to uh, Asia, far Asia. You have Japhethites that go to Iran and also to India. So they, they spread out. And uh, the uh, Japhethites also go to Europe. And you have the Shemites who tend to be in the central Middle East. So I believe you have, since the Philistines in Genesis 10 are identified as those, the Kathleen and Kaphtarim who are on Crete, that you have to put them here. And you also have others that probably came from uh, Egypt and settled over here in south southwestern Canaan. And these are the ones that are there at the time of Abraham. Abraham's roughly 2,100 to 2,000. Well, the time that we're talking about, by the time you get down to into the period of the judges, is somewhere around uh, 1350. You have that mention of the Philistines in the first part with... Um, Shamgar is the one who uses an ox goat and, and kills so many Philistines. So um, you have a one group that is going to make a migration to southwestern Canaan in the time of, of uh, Abraham, and they probably gave that territory a name. And as a result of that, those who came later intermarried with those early earlier. Uh, Philistines, and the name stuck even though the people that come later are the Greek sea peoples and their descendants of Japheth. Now that, we, we all sort of agreed on that, but there are people who say, no, no, they, they just made it up. Uh, number two, they just uh, put that name on there later on. And, you know, they, the, the, the people who don't really take the scripture seriously just make things up. So, uh, there, that's the origin of the, of the Philistines, and they're in this area on the right-hand map uh, where you have Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. These are the five cities of the lords of the Philistines. So the Israelites do evil. They're under the thumb of the Philistines for 40 years, and then we go to a specific family of the Danites, Manoah and his wife, and she's barren. So we had to address the issue of the barren woman, and there are six women who are barren. There aren't just six women in the time of Scripture that are barren, but there are six who are uh, made an issue out of, who are talked about, who are identified as such. Uh, And these are all of them. So there's a significance to that. You have the three uh, women who are the matriarchs, 
of Israel, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, and Rachel, the wife of Jacob. Then there's the mother of Samson, the last of the judges in the book of Judges. Then there is Hannah, who is the first key person mentioned in 1 Samuel. And it's really interesting because you, you, Samson and Samuel's lives overlap when we go back and look at that, that chart at the beginning. There we go. See, they, their lives overlap. So Samson is born about 1123, and, you know, some eight years later, Samuel is born. So there's this contrast between Sam, Samson, who is a Nazarite from birth, so is Samuel. And one is disobedient, that's Samson. The other one is obedient, and that is, that is Samuel. And Samuel is the one who God will use to anoint the first king, who is Saul, who's um, a spiritual failure, and it's taken out under the sin unto death by the end of First Samuel. And then Samuel also anoints the second king, who is King David. So these are the, uh, that gives you that, that background. We talked about the barren woman. But ultimately, the barren woman, the barren womb is a type of the virgin womb of Mary. The, the picture is of Israel's barrenness spiritually. But God, but every person who's spiritually dead is spiritually barren, and God is the one who can bring life where there is death or, or where there is no life. And he is able to bring life into the virgin womb of Mary, and there's the virgin conception and virgin birth. So the angel of the Lord tells her that she will conceive and bear a son. Now, I'm not going to go into uh, detail and do a, a study on when life begins, but the word that is used for conceive is hara, which is the verb for conception. There is a verb and a noun in uh, Hebrew for conception. But when we look at the Hebrew text for a parameter for life, it is always from the womb, which the NIV tends to consistently translate correctly as from birth because there's no noun for birth. There's a noun for conception. The, the point is, if the text were going to make an issue that life begins at conception and goes to, de- goes to a f- physical death, if those are the parameters, then the Bible, Hebrew has a noun for it. But Hebrew does not have a a noun for birth, so it uses an idiom, from the womb. And and a lot of people think from the womb means uh, from inside the womb, but it's an idiom, and it means from birth. NIV gets that right, NIV for change, Uh, not my favorite translation. So then we look at what the Bible teaches about the angel of the Lord. Added a little bit here, the title, Malaach. Uh, Adonai or Malach Yahweh uh, Malach is the uh, word for messenger and this refers to a supernatural being who either appeared or verbally spoke to human beings so the role the primary role of this supernatural being is communication of revelation disclosing information of God 
Speaking, what do you speak? When you open your mouth and you utter something, what comes out? Words. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word was logos. So this, the role that the angel of the Lord uh, plays is to communicate about God. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is said to have done that no one had seen the Father at any time, according to John 1. The only begotten he has uh, revealed him or explained him. Actually, the word is exegao, which is the word for exegesis, where we get our word exegesis. Uh, In each instance, uh, the angel of Yahweh is seen as fully God, addressed as God, and worshipped as God. So what I basically did in those first 12 points was to emphasize the deity of the angel of Yahweh. There were a few points I made where it sort of distinguishes him with a uh, dis- distinguishes him as a son. We'll get into that a little later. In and then um, tonight, what I'm going to add are points that indicate that the, he's not only divine but he's distinct from the Father. So in these cases, we see the angel of Yahweh is always seen as God. He's addressed as God. He is presented as fully God. And we have to remember that uh, if this isn't God, identical in essence with the Father, then we've got a problem with the ten for when the opening commandments in the Decalogue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. So the God of Israel is the God who delivered them from Egypt, which is repeated in Judges 6, 8. Judges 6 is Gideon. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and it's very clear in that passage that it's divine. That is one of the central passages to go to. Uh, to demonstrate the deity of the angel of the Lord. And there are certain similarities between the appearance of the angel of the Lord to Gideon and the angel of the Lord appearing uh, here in um, uh, Judges 13 to the mother of, of, of Samson. The angel of the Lord we saw uh, sometimes referred to as also the angel of God, Elohim, or the captain of the host of the Lord. And we saw some examples of that. For example, Genesis 21:17, uh, God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God said to Hagar. And in Genesis 31 also refers to the angel of God spoke to Jacob. In Judges 13, the mother of uh, Samson refers to the angel of the Lord as a man of God and the angel of the Lord. We looked at Hagar, who refers to the angel of the Lord as um, divine in verse 13. Now, I've highlighted that phrase. Then she called on the name of the Lord. It's interesting as you go through this, the emphasis on this kind of phraseology, the name of the Lord. What is important about the name of the Lord? What does that mean, the name of the Lord? What is this talking about? So we're going to come back at the end and talk about this a little bit. 
uh, because it's significant. It runs throughout the scriptures, and trust me, I did not put all of the scriptures up here. I ignored this. It's used over and again in Psalms, but we'll look at that uh, before we're done this evening. So she calls on the name of the Lord, and she calls the angel of the Lord, you are the Elohim who sees. So you see a connection here between the the name of the Lord is related to an attribute of God, and that's what we're going to see. The name is something that reflects uh, the essence or attribute of something. And so here it is related to the omniscience of God, that he knows all things. Um, Genesis 22.11 tells us the angel of the Lord calls to Abram. He doesn't see him. He just hears him. And then in 22.14, Abram calls the name of the place the Lord will provide, referring to the angel of the Lord as Yahweh. And 22.15, then the angel of the Lord called Abram a second time. And he said, verse 16 then says, the angel of the Lord says, by myself I have sworn, Moses is writing it, says, says the Lord. So it's very clear he's identifying the angel of the Lord with Yahweh as if they are one and the same. Uh, same thing with Jacob. It's also referred to as the angel of Elohim. And one of the significant passages in Hosea 12 refers back to the incident with Jacob and saying that the angel that appeared to him is the Yahweh Elohim Tzabaoth, the Lord God of hosts. And then the New King James translates it, the Lord is his memorable name. The NET translation translates it as, for the Lord God Almighty, the Lord is the name by which he is remembered. It's a strange phrase in Hebrew. It's only two words, Yahweh Zakru. Zakar is the word for memory. The U at the end is the third masculine singular uh, pronoun. The Lord, his memory. He is, he remembers him. Something like that. It's very awkward. So you'll find different translations will attempt to solve it different ways. But the point is, I think that we are to remember the Lord, who he is in terms of his essence. That's what the name refers. So we'll uh, come back to this again when we get to to the name. So there's a clear identification of the angel with uh, as God. But then we see, I went through a few passages that talk about the identification of the angel of the Lord with the Son, and uh, Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Lord speaks to the Son, and the Son then in Isaiah 9-6 is referred to as mighty God, the eternal Father. So we see this identity there. In Exodus, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. I'll talk about this whole passage again tonight. But the angel of the Lord identifies himself in 3.6 as, I am the God of your father Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Jesus refers to this episode in John 8.58 and 59. We looked at those uh, passages. And then point seven, the angel of the Lord had the same divine nature as 
the Lord God who sent him before Israel. And we saw, saw that, and that's referred to as in relation to Jesus as well. Uh, eighth point was that the Lord God who sent the angel of the Lord before Israel stated that his name was in him. Now, I didn't highlight that. I missed that one. But what does that mean, his name is in him? He has a name card that got stuck inside of him. See, we think of name as a label, as a tag, as a means of identification. That's not how the ancient world thought of a name. That's not how the Hebrews thought of a name. That the name has something to do with the essence of a person. So Jesus said that he came in his father's name. And that's more than just as a representative. It is a representative who, I, who is identical with the essence of the father. And that's why he's, when he's called the son of God, the Hebraism, the, the um, idiom is when you have son of, like son of a murderer, it's not saying his father was a murderer, but he has the characteristics of a murderer. Son of a fool has the characteristics of a fool. The son of God has the characteristics of God. So when he says he came in his father's name, it's another way of saying he has all the attributes of the father. He is, he is divine. So we talked a little bit more about that in the next couple of points. And then in verse, in the tenth point, the angel of the Lord told Samson's parents that his name was wonderful. Now, that's one of the titles in Isaiah 9 6. But there's more to it than that. We'll come back to that, uh, in a little bit. Why did he tell him his name was wonderful? Because Manoah is wanting to know what his name is. And when Manoah is asking, what's your name, what's he really asking? Who are you? You know, what's your essence? Who are you? Okay. And then we had a couple of other points, and we looked at, um, then, then what I'm adding here is related to point 12, that the angel of the Lord and Gideon. If you were to summarize this, you had to do a short summary of this. Where you would go is you would go to Genesis 21 with Hagar, demonstrating that she calls the angel of the Lord God. Then you would go to Judges 6, where Gideon calls the angel of the Lord God, and the text calls the angel of the Lord Yahweh and then you'll go to the passage we'll look at in a minute in Zechariah 1, where the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord says to the Lord God, which shows that he, there are two persons there. There's a conversation between the angel of the Lord, who the rest of Scripture clearly shows is fully divine, has a conversation with the Lord God. So that indicates two divine persons. But in these other passages, it shows that there's one divine person. This is how we start to arrive at the biblical teaching on the Trinity. So the angel of the Lord commissions Gideon to drive out the oppressors. Now, only God can do that. So if the angel of the Lord is doing that and not saying the Lord sent me to tell you to drive out the angels, but he, the angel of the Lord commands it, then that tells you he has that authority that only God has. Uh, B, secondly, 
Twice in the passage, the angel of the Lord is called the Lord. This is why you go to Judges 6, same kind of thing you have in Genesis 21. Uh, Judges 6.12, And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And then verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him, referring to the angel of the Lord. So see, the text calls him the angel of the Lord, and then two verses later just refers to him as Yahweh. Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel. See, that's the marching order. That's his uh, uh, warning order to go into battle, and that he will save Israel. Well, the, no angel has that authority, only God. Verse 15 uh, is Gideon's response, and then verse 16, And the Lord said to him, so in 14 and 16, the angel of the Lord is referred to as the Lord. But we're not done with verse 16 yet. Under the third subpoint C, the angel of the Lord tells Gideon in verse 16, uh, Surely I will be with you. And then in verse 36, we read, So Gideon said to God, "You, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. So who is it that's going with Gideon? It, he calls the angel God. So these passages all very strongly affirm that the angel of Yahweh is not an angel, one of the angelic hosts, but is a someone on par with Yahweh, fully God, undiminished deity. And Gideon's reaction when the angel of the Lord comes and he sees him and he brings a sacrifice and then the angel goes up and he realizes this is the angel of the Lord. He's seen God and and he has fear because he knows from other events such as Exodus 3.6 when Moses feared for his life because he had seen the angel of the Lord and seen the Lord. And in Exodus 19.21 when Moses is coming... Uh, when, the pe- when, when Moses is uh, bringing the people before the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai uh, to worship him, uh, God says that keep the, the people need to keep the distance because they can't look on me or they will, die, they will perish. So Gideon, I mean, uh, yeah, Gideon has a, has a basis for fearing his, his life. And then at the end, he builds an altar to worship the angel. You only worship God. And he is not rebuked by the angel. So you get other places where, for example, um, uh, Gabriel appears to someone and they want to worship him. And he, no, 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 no. You worship only God, uh, God alone. Now the thirteenth point. Twelve was new tonight. Thirteen is also new. Samson's father says that they saw God. So as we come to the end of the chapter, Manoah has spoken to the angel of God, uh, angel of the Lord, and it, now he wants to uh, offer it, uh, have an offering to the Lord. And while he did so, a wondrous thing happened. We'll come back to that word. That, that word is only used of deity. Uh, while Manoah and his wife looked on, it happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of Yahweh ascended in the flame of the altar. 
And when they saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And then 21 says that when the angel of the Lord did not appear to them again, Manoah knew that it was the angel of Yahweh and said to his wife, We have seen God. That's a, these are very strong statements that the angel of the Lord is God. But we have other passages that talk about the angel of the Lord being distinct from God. In Exodus 23.20, 20, in these passages in Exodus 23, basically God is telling Moses that his angel is going to go before the Israelites to lead them through the wilderness. He's also going to tell them that at times he's going to fall back and be on their backside to, to on the, behind them uh, to protect them. And so he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Isn't that interesting? He's basically saying, my essence, my nature, who I am, is in that angel. It's just an idiomatic way of saying he is divine. We have the same nature. Verse 22, but if if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel, verse 23, for my angel will go before you, and bring you into the promised land where the Amorites, Hivites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, Stalactites, and Stalagmites are, and I'll cut them off. And back in verse chapter 14, verse 19, the angel of God went before them and moved and went behind them. That was when they were crossing, uh, crossing, over, the, uh, uh, crossing over the Jordan. I mean, the crossing over the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 32, there's another reference to my angel shall go before you. Uh, And this angel is identified in all of these different references in uh, chapter 33, 1 and 2. I will send my angel before you. And the conclusion is because the Lord God sent this angel before Israel... And because it was the angel of the Lord who went before Israel, according to Exodus 14:19, it is apparent that the angel whom the Lord God sent was the angel of the Lord. Exodus 14:19, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. So it's the angel of the God in one passage, it's my angel in another passage, and that indicates the identity of the my angel references to the angel of the Lord. So there is, under point 14, there's more than one being identified as the Lord in several passages. Zechariah 23, I mean, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. The Lord says, Yahweh says, in a prophetic passage, Behold, the days are coming that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So David is referring to King David, the branch of righteousness within the, uh, within the imagery of Isaiah. The, the line of David is cut off and is 
later referred to as the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse, Jesse is David's father. So it it indicates that that the house of David is going to uh, face some trauma, but out of that stump of Jesse will come a sprout, will come uh, new growth. And that indicates the uh, reestablishment of the house of David in the future. So that sprout that comes out is the branch of righteousness. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now, only someone who is righteous can execute righteousness. So this king must be inherently righteous, and only God is righteous. So this is telling us that this Davidic king is going to be divine and have divine righteousness. And then verse 6 is referring to that future time of the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will will dwell safely. Now, this is his name. Again, we see that. It's talking about one of his attributes, his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So that clearly identifies this Davidic branch as Yahweh, distinct from God. And this is identified further in Isaiah 9-6, for unto us a child is born, emphasizing the birth, the humanity of Emmanuel. Unto us a son is giving, going back to Psalm 2-7, that the son is the title of the Messiah. And the son is not born, the son is given because he already exists. He's existed as the son for all of eternity. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. And the Hebrew word translated wonderful, which we'll see in a minute, is a distinct word that's only applied to, to God. So by being called Wonderful with this Hebrew word indicates his deity. He'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Uh, It's not eternal father. The Hebrew should be translated as father of eternity. So it's showing that the child that's born, the son that's given, is full, uh, undiminished deity. And then in Zechariah 1.12, the angel of the Lord answered and says, O Yahweh Tzabaot, O Lord of hosts. So the angel of the Lord who we've established as fully God and undiminished deity is speaking to the Lord of hosts. There are two distinct personalities there that are both spoken of as as God. So that clearly demonstrates a plurality in the Godhead. So there's our conclusion. In numerous passages, the angel of Yahweh is is, uh, identified as God, as full deity called God and Yahweh. In other passages, the angel of the Lord is distinct from God. Conclusion is there's a plurality in the Godhead, which is very important to understand. All right, let's go back to our passage. 
So we have the identification of the state of Israel at the time, that they're rebelling against God, they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and he turns them over for divine discipline to the Philistines for 40 years. Then it focuses on a Danite family, uh, Manoah and his wife, who is barren, and the angel of Yahweh, who we know as the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, appeared to the woman and says, of course, she knows that she is barren. Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and have a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. The Hebrew grammar there indicates that she is not giving a future condition but is uh, identifying that she has conceived and that she will give birth to a son. So she's, and which is news to her, she doesn't know she's pregnant yet, but she is. And so then she's given this, uh, this um, command related to, uh, related to the Nazarite vow, which we looked at last time, that a Nazarite was not to really have anything to do with a grapevine, could not touch the leaves, could not eat grape, could not uh, touch the, uh, the skins of the grape, could not drink wine. Uh, was, it was an identification that they were separate to the service of God. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. NIV translates it correctly from birth. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And that's an accurate translation. He doesn't complete the deliverance. He stirs, stirs the pot, moves things, gets things moving toward deliverance, but deliverance doesn't actually come until David. So it's a, a, a long time period. You will conceive and bear, uh, in verse 5, you've conceived. It should be, again, taken as not as a future, but as a present. Uh, you conceived and bear, uh, you have conceived and you will bear a son. Uh, no razor shall come upon his head. And so this is an integral part of the vow. Now, what's interesting is I want you to see which element in these Stipulations is left out when his mother repeats it. All right? So in verse 6, the woman comes and tells her husband, which shows that there's good communication between uh, the mother and the father. And she tells her husband, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Now, how did she know that? We don't know. I believe that it is because the presence of God is self-authenticating. When God speaks, you don't say, well, who are you? You know it's God speaking. There is something inside of our makeup, our, the image of God, that resonates, and we immediately know that's God's voice. He's the one who made us. We identify our Creator instantly. We may reject it, which is what Romans 1 is all about, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. So she comes and she says, the angel of God, very awesome. Again, that is a term, term that is applied uh, to de deity. 
And then she says, but I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. She was so stunned that she didn't think of any questions to ask. Well, who are you? Where are you from? She knew it was God, and so she was uh, silent. So what we need to ask is, well, what? why is this thing with a name? And um, I forgot to delete the passage. It's not number 6, 1 to 21. So in Judges 13, 6, the woman says, he didn't tell me his name. And in verse 17, Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, what's your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. So what what is the issue here? And we see it in various places. In verse 18, the angel of the Lord answers by saying, Why did you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Now this word translated wonderful, here is an adjective, and it's the word uh, peli. And it has this idea of wonderful. Other forms of it can refer to wonders that are, are miracles that are performed by God or God as being wonderful. And in Psalm 139.6, we have this word used in reference to knowledge about God and his essence. Psalm 139 is a meditation on the omniscience and then the omnipresence of God. And as David is meditating on the omniscience of God, he says such knowledge, the infinite knowledge of God, is too wonderful for me. It's beyond my comprehension. And this word that he uses there is only used in reference to to God. The noun form is used for wonderful in Isaiah 9-6, wonderful counselor. And it's also used in Exodus 15:11, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness?" And we've studied that concept of holiness as that which is unique or distinct, one of a kind. So who is like you in your uniqueness, your distinctness among the gods? None. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is not like any of these made-up gods that humans or demons came up with. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? So only a God who is wonderful, Pele, can do things that are uh, Pele, wonderful. So there's some other passages that talk about the name of the Lord that we've seen already. Back in the second point, we saw the reference to uh, Hagar calling, uh, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. So the concept of the name has to do with the essence of something. And she is emphasizing the God who sees. When we have passages that talk about the eyes of the Lord going to and fro. It's talking about his omniscience. He knows everything. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his knowledge. And we also pointed this out in Hosea 12.5, the Yahweh God of hosts. Uh, Yahweh is his memorable name. And uh, I commented there that it's awkward 
uh, Hebrew to translate, but it's the idea that w- in, in Hebrew, the idea of remembering something is not just recalling something to mind, but remembering it in view of a change of course, change of behavior or course of action. You remember it to do something. It's not just an academic reflection on something from the past. We also see this in Exodus. I pointed this out under point six. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So he had to go look at it. And uh, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Not only is it a burning bush that doesn't burn, it's a talking bush. Now you really have to check it out. Uh, so he calls to him, and he knows his name. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here am I. And then God said, don't draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, this is one of those examples. Is ground, is the earth pure, morally pure? No. Just like holy vessels, the vessels in the temple are not morally pure or impure. They're set apart to the service of God. And because God is here, this is a distinct place that is set apart for God. And so because it is a place where God is, then the sandals should be removed as a sign of respect for being in the presence of God. And then God identifies himself. He says, I am the God, I am the Elohim of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Moses does what? He hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God because he thought he would die. See, that's the same kind of reaction Gideon had. Then we go on, and a few verses later, Moses says to God, after God has commissioned him to go back to deliver the Israelites, and they have their conversation, and Moses tries to get out of it by saying, I, I stuttered, so it's not a good idea for me to be your, your mouthpiece. So God sa- says, okay, well, you're not going to talk. Aaron will do your talking for you, but you're not going to get out of it. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they say to me, what's his name? In other words, who is this God? What are his characteristics? What is his essence? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now that is one of several ways that you can translate this. And the idea here is that God is the self-existent one. He, is un, he has uncaused existence. He has always existed and always will exist. And so he says, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So we go on, and moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. So it's not just a tag, it's his essence. He is, 
he is tying himself to the promise of the Abrahamic covenant as something that comes out of his very core being, and that's why you can rely on it. And that promise to Abraham uh, means that the Jewish people, whether they are obedient or disobedient, saved or unsaved, are still Abraham's descendants, and God will bless those who bless them. You know, there's some people who say, well, they rejected Jesus, so they're not God's people right now, so this doesn't apply. That's anti-Semitism. They're always God's people. They were God's people when they were disobedient to God at the time of Jeremiah. God took them out under divine discipline for the uh, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he disciplined them, and they're in carnality, they're back in Babylon, but they're still under the protection of God, even though they are in rebellion against him, and that's the book of Esther. God's name isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, but the book of Esther tells us that God is providentially protecting Israel, even when they're disobedient, because it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. He doesn't put a pause on the Abrahamic covenant. So in verse 16, he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you. So this name, he gives meaning to a name because Yahweh is used all through Genesis. And that's what it looks like up here on the upper right. And the four letters at the top that you see, you see something that looks like an apostrophe, and then something like a table with an opening on the side. That's that letter hey. And then this that looks like a cane is the letter uh, W or Vav. And then the little marks underneath are the vowels. So what it looks like right here without the vowels is how it was written until you begin to see the use of uh, markings to indicate a vowel in the early part of the church age and these gradually developed and those are the vowel points so the name as it's written here is just Y-H-W-H and the W is usually pronounced like a V I, I always heard it pronounced like a V when I was growing up when I went to seminary some of them pronounced it like a W and I heard the explanation that well, it's the influence of German because the Germans were, a lot of German scholars studied Hebrew, and so they pronounced W like a V. But when you go to Israel, they all pronounce the Vav like a V. They don't pronounce it like a W. And I've never understood why Old Testament scholars here continue to pronounce it like as a Wav instead of a Vav. Oh, not that important, but it's, it's just odd. You'll hear it pronounced different ways. So the verb hayah, see it has the hey and the apostrophe that's the y, uh, the yud, and this is a, a, another hey. That's the root verb from which this noun comes. And the verb means to be. It's like our word is. He is that he is. He, I am that I am. Am is the first person form of the to be verb. So Yahweh is probably a masculine singular participial form 
uh, that became used as an adjective or a noun. I think uh, Petrovich used the example of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Good, bad, and ugly are adjectives, but in that title they're used as nouns. So that's what you have here is a uh, participial form or an adjective that's used as a noun. And in this case, what it emphasizes is God's eternity, that he is the self-existent one. It could be tranced he who is, but it may lose that eternality concept. So the one who always exists, the one who always existed, exists, and always will exist is another way to get the idea he always or he will continue to exist. So in biblical times, a name is related to the thing it names, so that a name reflects the nature or essence of the thing. And when we read this phrase in the Old Testament that they called on the name of the Lord, what that indicates is they are worshiping the essence of Yahweh. They are worshiping him as, as God. And here the essence, the attribute they're emphasizing is his eternality, the everlasting uh, God, Genesis twenty one twenty three, And after God provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac, Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide because the Lord provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac as he provides the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute sacrifice. In Jeremiah twenty three twenty seven, we read uh, that the uh, false prophets try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, forgetting God's name or taking the name of God in vain means to um, uh, dishonor God. Taking God's name in vain is not, um, it's not using the name God in connection with a profanity. Taking the, God's name in vain is when you see a uh, tele-evangelist say, God told me X, Y, or Z. Because they're claiming God told them something, he didn't do it. They're, they're taking God's name in vain. That's what that's referring to. It's not referring to what most people think it's referring to. It's much more serious than that. It is put, attaching God's name to a cause that God has not attached his name to. And making my people forget who I am by going after uh, Baal's. Uh, in Hebrew, the term for name originated with a meaning indicating something that's distinctive or, or as a sign. And in, the, in, in Greek, the Greek word for name, which is anima, from which we get onomatopoeia, is derived from, a na- from the word for knowledge. So it has the idea of you know something about the object that's being, being named. So it's not just a label in the Middle Ages, towards the end, there was a view called nominalism that developed from William of Ockham. And it was the idea that the name of the thing has nothing to do with the essence of the thing. But that's just the opposite of the biblical view in, in, the, in, in the Hebrew. We come to Scripture in the New Testament, like Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
Now, see, I think that let's let's flesh this out a little bit. It's not just the name Jesus, not the label Jesus. It's all that Jesus is. We see this going back to John one twelve. But as many, the verse before says that he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. They have to believe in who Jesus is. They have to understand something about his his undiminished deity and his true humanity that he is able to go to the cross and die for our sins. And as just a man, he can't do that. So there has to be some understanding that he is the one who is able to pay for our sins. And even if it's a, a little kid, they have some sense. They're not going to write a doctoral dissertation on the deity of Christ, but they have some sense that he's more than just a human and that he can do what he says he will do, which only God can do. In John 2.23 he goes to Jerusalem for his first Passover, and during the feast, many believed in his name. That's the exact same phrase you see over and over again all through John. What, are they, what, what does this mean? They believed in who he was, his essence, that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That, that relates his, his essence to his deity being the Son of God. So many people ask the question, do I have to believe in the deity of Christ to trust in him? Yes, you do, because if you trust in someone who is not God, then you, you're not saved. You're just believing in a man. You've got the wrong Jesus. You've got the Jesus that's related to Jesus, my plumber, and not the Jesus that is in the Gospel of John. Uh, John seventeen twenty six, and I have declared to them your name. So Jesus is declaring the essence of who God is. That's what he came to do, to exegete, to explain uh, who the Father is. Uh, I declared to them your name, and I will declare that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And then John twenty thirty one, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, in who he is. So we have to understand something about who this Jesus is. We can't say believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. You got People have to understand who Jesus is. It's not Jesus, my plumber. It's not Jesus, the Labrador retriever. It's Jesus, the Son of God. That's who they have to believe in. Okay, so next time, I didn't quite get there today to finish out all the rest, but we can summarize that uh, next time when we start and then get into the first part of, uh, of Samson's activities in chapter 14. Father, thank you for your word helping us to understand it, recognizing your uniqueness. You are the one and only God. There is no other God beside you. You are eternal. You are the everlasting one. You are righteous and distinct, righteous and holy. And that the Lord Jesus Christ has the same essence. He is undiminished deity, shares that name with you. But yet he is distinct in terms of his personality and in terms of his role. And Father, we just thank you that we have the understanding of Scripture 
the clarity of Scripture to be able to see and understand who, more about who you are and who Jesus is and what all this talk about the name means and especially as it applies to what we must believe to be saved. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.